Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, as representatives of Syria's government and opposition meet face to face for the first time since the start of the civil war there three years ago, we ask if there's any prospect of an end to the conflict, which has already cost more than 120,000 lives and driven more than 9 million people from their homes. From Kiev, we hear about the dangerous standoff after two months of street demonstrations triggered by the Ukrainian president's rejection of closer ties with the European Union. But we begin with immigration, set to become one of the biggest issues in this year's European Parliament elections and the subject of a major series this week in the Irish Times. From Bulgaria to Britain, anti-immigration parties are on the rise, increasing pressure on mainstream parties to take a tougher approach to economic migrants and asylum seekers, and even calling into question the right of EU citizens to move freely throughout the Union. To examine what's going on in the immigration debate across Europe, I'm joined from Brussels by European correspondent Suzanne Lynch and from London by Mark Hennessy, our London editor. Suzanne, you've been reporting from Bulgaria, which is the first port of call in the European Union for many refugees fleeing the crisis in Syria. What kind of reception have they been getting? Yes, I mean, what Bulgaria has seen in the last year or so has been a surge in immigrants from Syria coming up through Turkey, and mainly because Greece, its neighbour, has, has toughened up on security. So a lot of these refugees are being pushed in through Bulgaria. And, and, and plainly, Bulgaria cannot cope. It has seen a tenfold increase um, over the last year, so the situation whereas in October 2012 they got 300 refugees for a month, this had swelled to you know 10 times that the following October. Um, I visited a camp in the east of the country, about 50 kilometres um, away from the Turkish border, and I mean it, it, it was pretty grim. It was in an old barracks. Um, tents had been housing a lot of these immigrants. You're talking elderly people, very small children in freezing temperatures. Um, but a lot of pressure, pressure from NGOs like Amnesty, uh, the UN, um, did improve things. Uh, Bulgaria got extra money from the European Union. So now prefabs have been built, um, slightly better facilities. But, I mean, it's still horrific conditions. Um, very, very cold, uh, no electricity, um, and, and no shower facilities. And these, the, these camps house people for maybe up to three or four months as they await uh, their asylum application to be processed. And once the asylum application is processed, what happens then? Well, at that stage, um, there's a law called the Dublin Convention, which means that asylum seekers who come to a country, that they must seek asylum in that country of entry. So this is a major debate at the moment of the European Union, because countries like Greece and Italy and Bulgaria, at the edges, at the outer peripheries of Europe, argue that it's not fair, because they, are, they automatically get a lot more immigrants who arrived to, to those countries first. And they feel that they are being, you know, the, the phrase called burden sharing, that other countries um, should take more responsibility. Now, other countries say they take their fair share of, of refugees, particularly from Syria. Sweden, for example, Germany, have been very forthright in taking um, asylum seekers. Um, many of these asylum seekers, incidentally, from Syria, very well educated, um, have a lot to contribute to society. I met one young guy, about 26, who's working in an IT company in Sofia, um, and another one who was working as a teacher in an international school there from Homs. Um, but a lot of them do want to move on from countries like Bulgaria to countries like Germany um, and Sweden, which have better facilities, really, for asylum seekers. Bulgaria is uh, one of the poorer member states of the European Union. What is the state of public opinion when they uh, see this great influx of migrants? 
Yes, and of course, this is the big irony that, that Bulgaria itself has seen as kind of the poor relation in, in European Union politics a lot. Um, there's, been a, there's been a huge rise in anti-immigrant feeling over the last few months. Um, there's been one, like many parts of, of Europe, um, a rise of a far-right party, Ataka. Um, the billboards of, of their leader are everywhere um, as you drive around the country. Um, there's been a lot of anti-immigrant violence, a lot of stabbings, um, around five or six reported incidents. Um, a lot of this was in reprisal for an attack uh, by an immigrant on a Bulgarian person. So this really stoked up feeling. But um, no, there's, a, there's quite um, a rising uh, xenophobia in the country. Now, Bulgarians themselves, along with the Romanians, have since the start of this year been allowed to work anywhere in the European Union. And that's a development that's been controversial in many of the richer member states of the European Union. How do the Bulgarians feel about this? Do they, do they see uh, any comparison between their situation elsewhere in Europe and the situation of the migrants coming into Bulgaria? Yes, I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of Bulgarians see this irony. Um, and one, one person uh, commented to me that, you know, just as the Syrians um, come to Bulgaria for the search of a, of a better life, Bulgaria joined the EU um, with the promise of a better life, and both sides have been disappointed. Bulgaria are quite frustrated at what the European Union has, has given them. They were, they were last in the door, as it were, uh, in 2007, and, and both Bulgaria and Romania were slightly unfortunate in the sense that their um, accession uh, coincided with the, with the economic collapse in Europe. So they arguably didn't get a lot of the benefits that maybe older countries have. have. Um, I mean, some people I met in Bulgaria, for example, were very critical of the common agricultural policy. They argued that countries like Ireland, like France, have, have, have got it sewn up, really, um, those older member states, and nothing has been left for them. Um, so they are themselves quite frustrated with uh, the European Union. It's, it's the lowest, um, wa- their lowest wages in, in the European Union. It's the poorest country um, when you take those indicators. Um, and a lot of them do see freedom of movement as one of the main advantages. But again, I met a lot of um, educated uh, younger people in their 20s, um, very happy to stay in Sofia. They argue that, no, there's not going to be an exodus to Britain. Why would you want to go to Britain, they say. And they point out that this controversy over Roma, of the Roma people, um, they say, well, Roma, um, the, the, the Roma population is also an issue for some Bulgarians within Bulgaria, and it's only a small part of the, of the population. Mark, the debate in Britain has been dominated by the issue of internal migration within the EU. Is this just another expression of anti-EU feeling, or is immigration a real problem for people? No, it is a real political problem. If you ask uh, the members of the public their views in the European Union or their views on the issues that most concern them, they tend to put the European Union down near the very bottom, uh, 7 or 8%. Now, that might surprise people when you see the rhetoric in the British press. However, when you ask them uh, how they view immigration, about 60-odd percent put it down as the most significant issue that is affecting Britain today. Now, clearly, that is regionally patchy. As, uh, as much as anything else. Uh, the east of England, in East Anglia particularly, has been changed, some parts of it beyond recognition, over the last uh, 10 years because of the numbers of Eastern Europeans who've come. Yes, if you take a place like Cumbria, uh, very, very few uh, migrants have moved there. Yes, the feeling in Cumbria about immigration is as strong as it is t- to be found anywhere else in Britain. So this is uh, an issue that is causing very deep uh, political concern for uh, uh, David Cameron, the Conservative Prime Minister. He is attempting to uh, dampen down that because any sort of concentration on immigration is just grist to the mill for uh, the UK Independence Party, who are going to do very, very well on the back of the European Parliament elections, assuming that they don't um, do 
tactically silly things as they are wont to do in the run-up to that election. Here in Ireland, we also opened our borders straight away in 2004 to uh, immigrants from Central and Eastern Europe. And yet there doesn't seem to have been quite as much of a blowback here in Ireland. Why has it been such a problem in Britain? Well, it's a very good point. And, and in some ways, the, uh, the change that took place in parts of Irish society were even more profound in the wake of '04 than what you found here. Uh, the difficulty here, perhaps, is that it has been combined with uh, the, the economic collapse in, to, in 2007. And people see what happened pre-2007 as a labor-orchestrated plan on their part to get cheap labor into the British economy, and that it was easier from the Gordon Brown's point of view to get hard-working Poles and Lithuanians and others uh, into the British economy rather than going to places like Stoke and the other uh, depressed areas of Britain and getting people who in many cases have been uh, come from families where there is three generations of unemployment and getting those people back into the labor force. And then after 2007, uh, the, uh, the the Eastern European migrants who were seen as people who were effectively uh, pushing down pay rates uh, elsewhere across uh, uh, industry, and that wasn't helped by senior people in labour uh, coming forth and saying this was not happening because all one had to do was go on to a building site in London uh, and anywhere else in Britain, and you knew within five minutes that there was no doubt that Eastern European migration was impacting upon wages. And how big a threat is this to Labour electorally? You said that UKIP are going to gain from it probably, which is a problem for the Conservatives, but is it a worry for Labour as well? It's, it's a big problem for, for Labour and becoming more so by the week. Uh, we have a by-election here taking place in the middle of February for Paul Goggins, the Labour MP who formerly served in the Northern Ireland office, and uh, unusually a man, it, it can be said of him, a man much loved uh, around the, the House of Commons. Now, he died uh, in the latter days of December, and it is Labour's call to uh, set a date for the by-election. They have chosen to have the by-election within six weeks of his funeral. They're having it in the middle of February. And the reason that is being done is because of real deep concern within Labour that uh, uh, places like Manchester, where Paul uh, served, uh, will be areas which will see a UK, a UK, a UK Independence Party rise in support. And they are attempting to get in ahead of the curve. And every uh, Labour MP has been told that they are going to be spending significant portions of time over the next six weeks. And if you move on from that into the Europeans proper, uh, Labour are certainly likely to be as much affected by uh, UKIP as uh, the Conservatives. And when it comes to the general election in 2015, there is increasing concern that the UK Independence Party could affect Labour in north of England uh, constituencies, particularly some of the old mill towns, where there is a considerable degree of resentment. Oftentimes it is inchoate in the sense that people don't quite know who they're necessarily angry with. They're just angry with, with everybody. And they are looking for a place uh, to move their support. And places where uh, Labour have been uh, staunchly in power for decades upon decades, uh, there is concern. Now, whether that will be reflected on election day or not, 
is something obviously that will only be known in time and there is a danger that the UK Independence Party will uh, shoot themselves in the foot uh, perhaps to an extent that could really damage them. They, they, they are internally poorly disciplined. Uh, some of their people are prone repeatedly to say stupid things. So far that doesn't seem to be affecting the brand. It seems to be provoking a degree of amusement amongst uh, potential voters. Now if they continue to, to stay as benign in their view of the oddity of UKIP, there is no doubt, but uh, the UK Independence Party is going to change the face of British politics in the middle of May this year. Suzanne, anti-immigration parties, many of them on the extreme right, they're making gains all across Europe. Where in particular are they making the biggest gains? Yes, I mean, it's, it's really a pattern that's been replicated across Europe um, and in very different kinds of countries. So, um, in Hungary, for example, Jobbik, that party, um, seen as a very, very extreme far-right party. It now has uh, 44 seats in the Hungarian parliament. Um, and at the moment, there is controversy about the visit of the party leader to London um, this weekend, um, a call for, for um, his entry to be banned. So Hungary is one place. Greece, the rise of Golden Dawn, again, a neo-Nazi party, really increasing its share of the vote there. Um, we also have UKIP in Britain, not as extreme, of course, but in, in countries like Britain and France to the west of Europe, we also see a rise of an anti-immigration party. Um, France in particular has seen the rise of the National Front, now has over 20% of the vote in some estimations. And I mean, a real eye-opener for Europe was in October when um, in, a, in a kind of by-election in Brignol in the, in the southeast of France, um, the, the National um, the Marine Le Pen's party uh, gained more than 50% of the vote. So this was seen as a real wake-up call for Europe. Suzanne Lynch in Brussels and Mark Hennessy in London, thank you. After three years of an increasingly bloody and brutal civil war, Syria's government and opposition are due to meet for the first time face-to-face in Geneva today. The talks got off to an inauspicious start when the UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon first of all invited Iran, a key ally of Bashar al-Assad's regime in Syria, to attend the talks and then rescinded the invitation. Our Middle East analyst Michael Jansen is in Geneva for the talks and she joins us now. Michael, uh, this morning the talks were due to start proper with the two sides in the same room, but something's happened to postpone them. Yes, um, the postponement was due to uh, the opposition refusal to deal with the government delegation until it signs or formally accedes to the uh, Geneva One communique, which talks about um, a transitional government, which would uh, be granted full executive authority. Uh, the problem with this is that this Geneva one communique, which was issued in June 2012, has two parts. The first part actually deals with ceasefires, access uh, for humanitarian aid to areas which are caught in the fighting, and other issues. And that is supposed to be um, implemented first uh, as confidence building measures and uh, measures to end the, the war. Um, and the government uh, is insisting that this should be the order of priority. Um, and the second part of the Geneva One communique, which is the basis for these talks, deals with the transitional arrangements. So there is a general fight between the government delegation and the 
opposition and its supporters over what is to be given priority. Now, these talks are jointly sponsored by the United States and Russia, Russia seen as a key ally of the uh, government in Syria and the United States backing the opposition. But the, the opposition that are represented here in Geneva, this is not the entire opposition or the entire forces that are fighting against Assad. Is that not right? Uh, yes, this is true. Actually, this is even a, a rump uh, section of the opposition uh, coalition, which was formed in December 2012 um, uh, with the help of the United States, Qatar, and Turkey, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, this coalition uh, divided, uh, actually, last weekend over whether to go to Geneva or not, with about one-third of the members walking out and uh, the rest of the delegation agreeing to go to Geneva. Now, the group that is here is led by Ahmad Jarba, who is actually Saudi Arabia's man on the coalition. The coalition consists mainly of... Um, expatriates, many of whom have not been in Syria for many years, although some definitely have been. In fact, they've been in Syrian prisons for many years. Um, the other thing is that the uh, domestic groups which were invited to come to the conference were asked to sit on the overall delegation, including the coalition. But since those groups, the domestic groups, don't feel that the coalition represents Syrians because it has no following in Syria. They refuse to sit on the same delegation. And these are two groups, one called the National Coordination Board, which is, has some following in Syria, and the other is the Kurdish Democratic Union, which has a large following in Syria and, in fact, controls large areas in the northeast. Michael Jansen in Geneva, thank you. Now to Ukraine, where President Viktor Yanukovych's rejection of closer ties with the European Union triggered street demonstrations before Christmas, protests that have since escalated into a full-blown constitutional crisis, with demands that his government should step down. We're joined from Kiev by Dan McLaughlin, who's been reporting on the protests from the very beginning. Dan, it looked as if we might be close to a deal between the opp opposition and the government, but it seems to have fallen apart. That's right. Um, after five hours of talks last night, the opposition leaders came out from the meeting with President Yanukovych without anything to show for it, really. Uh, some suggestion of, of, of some vague concessions. If the, uh, if the protesters would leave a certain area of town, then maybe some prisoners would be released. Some, some, some people who've been held during the unrest this week would be released. But nothing really concrete and certainly uh, nothing that would approach... Um, the kind of concessions that were necessary to satisfy the opposition leaders and the demonstrators. They want the government to step down, they want the president to step down, they want snap elections, they want all those uh, officials and police responsible for violence against demonstrators to be punished, and they want a whole host of what they see as repressive laws uh, annulled. So. Um, nothing approaching uh, anything that would satisfy the protest movement came out of the talks last night. Um, and as a result, having been told that, there is, that the talks hadn't really delivered anything concrete, the protesters went back to the barriers uh, yesterday evening and they're still there today. How dangerous is this standoff? It's extremely unpredictable. And this week, uh, the first fatalities did occur. Um, I mean, the protests have been taking place here in Kiev now for two months, and they've been overwhelmingly peaceful. Um, 
on two or three occasions, the riot police have moved in and they've cracked down on groups of protesters. But ultimately, they've resisted the riot police moves and, and peace has been restored. Um, but on Sunday, uh, after a, a big protest on, on Independence Square, which is the heart of the protest movement here in Kiev, uh, a group of protesters moved away from the main rally and confronted riot police who are only about 500 meters away from Independence Square. They're blocking the street that leads up to Parliament and um, the government headquarters building. Um, clashes took place on Sunday evening for the first time, large-scale clashes here in Kiev, an exchange of Molotov cocktails and rocks being thrown from the protesters, um, uh, riot police responding with tear gas, with rubber bullets, with... Um, with stun grenades, and th that fighting continued for um, about two, two and a half days. Um, and according to the opposition, five people were killed, five protesters were killed in those clashes. Four people were shot, they say, and another protester was thrown from a, a, a big colonnade, which, which is just alongside the street where the clashes were taking place, and which actually leads, leads to the, the Dynamo Kiev football stadium. The police say that, that uh, an, or officials rather say that two people were indeed killed, they were shot dead, um, but officials deny categorically that police were using firearms. They say that the, the, the protesters seem to have been shot by what they call provocateurs, suggesting that people perhaps linked to the opposition um, shot protesters so as to ratchet up the situation and to intensify the crisis. This crisis, this conflict when it began before Christmas, it appeared uh, in some of the reporting in Western Europe at least to be a straightforward conflict, a sort of a tug of love between uh, those in uh, the Ukraine who wanted closer ties with Russia and others who wanted closer ties with the European Union. But it's a bit more complicated than that. It seems complicated. Um, Ukraine is indeed divided quite starkly between East and West. Eastern regions are geographically close to Russia. Um, are also very close to Russia uh, historically and culturally. Um, most of the people out there speak Russian as their first language. Uh, and they tend to support President Yanukovych, who comes from the eastern region of Donetsk, the main industrial region in Ukraine. In the west uh, of Ukraine, on the other hand, people are much closer to the European Union. The, the region borders Poland, Hungary, Slovakia. Romania, and um, generally, uh, Ukrainian is the main language spoken there. Culturally, it's very strongly Ukrainian, and Ukrainian nationalism and the suspicion of Russia is much stronger over there. Um, so the protests did initially, uh, they, they had a kind of uh, east-west split with certainly people in Kiev and western Ukraine wanting to move closer to the European Union, but ultimately President Yanukovych deciding that a deal that was on offer from the European Union would do too much damage to Ukraine's economy, too much damage to relations with Russia. He chose to look the other way, to postpone that deal, and to try and um, re-establish and repair relations with Russia, and he also took a $15 billion dollar loan and, and an agreement for cheaper gas from Russia to prop up the economy. But beneath that, beneath the question of, of, um, of Ukraine's geopolitical stance, there is lots and lots of uh, um, dissatisfaction in Ukraine with the way President Yanukovych has been running the country, and lots of dissatisfaction over corruption, um, uh, a perceived increasing authoritarianism in his rule, uh, people look to the government and they see most of the people in there are very close to uh, his um, his friends and his relatives. Uh, lots of his friends and relatives have become very, very rich while he's been in power. So there's a feeling that the, that the country is uh, being badly run and is being run in favor of 
um, a very small elite that is close to President Yanukovych and what they call his clan from the eastern region of Donetsk. But having said that, there is, a bit, there is still an east-west dimension because that dissatisfaction is much, much stronger in western and central regions of Ukraine than it is over in the area of Donetsk and other places closer to Russia. Now, the, uh, the former heavyweight boxer Vitaly Klitschko has emerged as one of the leaders of the opposition. Is he viewed by the opposition as the alternative president? Uh, he has emerged uh, as probably the, the, the most popular and the most uh, prominent of the three key opposition leaders who are leading things here in, in Kiev. Um, he hasn't been in politics long, but he is obviously a sporting hero as a, as a world heavyweight boxing champion. He was probably Kiev, uh, Ukraine's most famous sportsman and most popular sportsman. Um, he doesn't have much political experience, however, so in some sense he's relying for for that experience and that political know-how on um, a loose alliance with another opposition politician. His name's Arseny Yatsenyuk. He leads a party called uh, Batkivshina, Fatherland. That's actually the party of, of jailed former Prime Minister Yulia Tymoshenko, but while she's in jail, he's running the party. So they are kind of a, a, a liberal alliance, but... Um, uh, Klitschko certainly has much more personal popularity and more charisma, if you like, than Mr. Yatsenyuk. The other key figure in terms of, of the opposition leaders is um, a man called Oleg Tyakhnibok. He leads a party called Svoboda, which means freedom. And that's a, 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 an, an ultra-nationalist party, which is popular and strong in Western Ukraine, but doesn't have much support really nationally. However, when you look at the, the, the rallies here in Kiev and in other parts of the country, um, it's very strongly represented. Its activists are very forceful, very dynamic. Their flags are everywhere. They're making speeches. Um, and they've done a lot to organize uh, physically the protest camps in Kiev and other cities. So they are the three parties that sort of form a loose alliance at the moment, trying to oust Mr. Yanukovych. Mr. Yanukovych. But, but their alliance is also um, uh, rather tenuous and rather fractious. Um, there are disagreements between them as to uh, tactics and how they should move ahead in trying to oust Ms. Yanukovych. Um, so it remains to be seen how, uh, how much of a unified front they can present as this, as this crisis moves forward. And finally, Dan, and very, very briefly, is it, is it possible at all to resolve this crisis without the president and his government stepping down? Uh, it's extremely hard to see how this can be resolved now. When you talk to people here on the square uh, and around Kiev and, and you hear opinions from other parts of Ukraine from protesters, they say we've, they've basically reached an impasse. They've reached a point whereby with these sweeping new laws, if Mr. Yanukovych stays in power, vast numbers of protesters have basically been criminalized by these new laws and they could be put in jail. If Mr. Yanukovych is ousted, um, he could face prosecution. His, all his, uh, his closest allies and business supporters could face prosecution, the loss of their assets and potential imprisonment. So it's a very, very stark situation and the country is deeply, deeply polarized right now. Thank you, Dan McLaughlin. And that's all from this edition of Worldview from the Irish Times. And from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. <laughs>